Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Jason Minadakis, who is the artistic director of Marin Theater Company in Mill Valley. This is his 10th year as artistic director and this is Marin Theatre Company's 50th anniversary season. Jason Minadakis, Marin Theatre Company's trying to get more young people involved in theatre. Are you seeing the results of that in terms of attendance or even in terms of subscribers? We're definitely seeing it in terms of attendance. The audience is diversifying here at Marin partly due to the programming that we've been doing over the past 10 years and that we've really accelerated, I guess, over the past four. We sort of changed the company's focus so that the company was really focused on new American work. And we were looking to support playwrights at all levels of production. We were looking to support the development and the creation of new work through the two new play prizes that we have. currently have seven commissions out right now for playwrights that are writing plays specifically for us. And we really bulked up our new play department through the good work of Margot Melcon, who was our former director of new play development, and then through a number of donors who've helped us to bulk up our commissioning program. Our board created a commission specifically from the board that we give out every year. We have a number of you know new American playwrights who are working on work specifically for us at the moment. We began to program that way as well, where one or two of our plays per year were American classics or were plays that were perhaps from another country that reflected on the new American work that we were doing and really created a broader context. For instance, in this past year, a new play that we did because it was the West Coast premiere was Anne Boleyn, but it had a little bit more of a historical quality to it. You know, you could kind of look at the classic from last season as being August Wilson's Gem of the Ocean, which, again, is only a 10-year-old play. You know, that's the sort of work that we have begun doing here at Marin Theatre Company. And, of course, this season, the classic for us this year is the Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning play August Osage County, which hasn't been done in a professional production in the Bay Area except for the Broadway tour. Our local Bay Area actors, our professional actors here in the Bay Area, have never had a chance to audition or, or do this play. So that's one of the reasons we're kicking off our 50th anniversary season with it. Also because it happens to be a playwright, we did Killer Joe back in 2006, right before I got here, that really sort of changed the direction of the theater. Prior to that, the theater did a number of different things every year, and it was really a very eclectic type of theater. Then with Killer Joe, they really went into a new direction, and they were looking for a very specific type of artistic director when they found me. So the work has become a little bit more focused on new American work, and so we're, we're sort of going back and, and tipping our cap to that moment in our history. I'm excited about it because this is going to be my third Tracy Letts play that I'm directing, and the woman who's playing Violet for us, this is actually our second collaboration on a Tracy Letts play. 
Her name's Sherman Frazier, and she was Amanda in the production of The Glass Menagerie that we did a few years ago. She's actually from Oklahoma. Her dad is actually originally from Pawhuska, which is where the play is set. She's a really interesting artist to bring back into this piece, to bring back to Marin Theater Company. And then the rest of the actors, the other 12 actors in the production are all Bay Area mainstays. Arwen Anderson, Robert Sicular, and Dara. We're really excited about this group of actors that are going to be doing this production. We have two other plays that you can look at in this season and say that they're also classics because we have a brand new world premiere production of Lauren Gunderson and Margot Melcon's Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley, which is a new story of the family that's in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Lauren also happens to be our playwright in residence who's going to be with us for the next three years. And then the next play, immediately following Miss Bennett, we're doing a new adaptation of Native Son. Richard Wright's novel from the mid-20th century that chronicles the story of a young African-American man in 1930s Chicago. You know, the first three plays of this year are all new plays. Miss Bennett is a world premiere. Native Son is a second production. It's a West Coast premiere. And the playwrights will be in residence with us working on these plays, but they're classic stories. And then the other three plays in the season are new plays. That's sort of the way we've been putting the seasons together over the past couple of years is that we've been trying to find ways to do classic content through a new lens. And so, you know, this past year, Gem of the Ocean was a 10-year-old play, but it was a play that we were doing with an entirely new sort of artistic aesthetic. Jason Mendedakis, I want to go quickly back into this past season, The Oldest Boy my Manana Comes, Gem of the Ocean, Swimmers, Anne Boleyn, Invisible Hand. Of those that struck me, the strongest was Invisible Hand. Um, that To me, that blew everyone away. Gem of the Ocean, setting it outside of a naturalistic uh, milieu, didn't seem to work for me because it seemed that the play's strength is the combination of naturalism and the fantasy of the City of Bones even though the acting, I thought, was terrific. What's your impression of what I thought? The reason that we revisit some of these plays is to allow artists to have a different approach to a piece. And I think specifically with August Wilson, he had such a definitive way of working with his immediate collaborators that I think for people who have experienced that initial burst of, of August's creativity – there's a bit of definitiveness about the way the plays were done. For the younger African-American artistic family, I think there are young artists who are interested in exploring August Wilson without the shackles of their original production elements. And I think to say that there's a way the plays work is because we're so close to the plays. I think your comments would perhaps be very similar to the comments that we heard for the first generation removed from producing Shakespeare after Shakespeare passed away. Except that most of us here in the Bay Area have never seen Gem of the Ocean because it is a relatively recent play. 50 years from now, I think you're right, but I would like to see all 10 plays first. You know, a lot of our audience did see the play at either OSF or ACT. There have been two major productions within the area that, you know, a lot of the people that we talked to prior to doing the play had seen one of those two productions. And I think the the sort of mandate that we've set for ourselves in doing August Wilson is very much bringing in the next generation of African-American artists and allowing them to have a chance to produce August Wilson and to bring their artistic vision to August Wilson. 
that is actually something that, you know, has been very important to the three productions of August Wilson that we've done up to this point, that we haven't necessarily done remounts of the way those plays were produced before. And that's, I think, an important thing for us in terms of revisiting those plays. It allows us to have a conversation with our audiences about August Wilson's work and how his work has been the base of much of the the new African-American writing that's happening now. And so many writers have looked to August as a starting point to explore the African-American experience in America. And so we're using it as a touchstone and, and as, a, as a point of reference for the, for the new work that we're doing as well. Jason Mendodakis, when you walk in before opening night, are you pretty sure you know what the reaction is going to be? And what do you do if you know that for some reason the audience, even though you've done the best you can, that the audience is probably not going to be jumping for joy? How do you feel? What do you do? The reason we program our shows is first and foremost to create an, an ongoing dialogue with our community. We don't program our season or the work that we're doing here based on how a play would be received. It's more of how the conversation continues to develop amongst our artistic family and, and amongst our patron base. There may be a play that doesn't attract the wide number of people from all around the Bay Area, it may not have the word of mouth or the critical reception to pull people across the bridges. When that starts happening, that's when you know we have what people would consider a hit where it goes way beyond what we expect out of the box office, which you know we love it when that happens. But each play that we do here is part of an evolving conversation about the art of the American playwright. And it, it's also about the lives that we're living. You know, for instance, last year we had two plays that did not break box office records. My Manana Comes and Swimmers. They were both two plays that were very new. One was a world premiere. One was a second production. They were both plays that were incredibly important for us to do, both to support those playwrights and also because those were two plays that are just beginning their lives in the in the American canon. My Manana Comes was the story of, of four men that we never see on the American stage. You know, we knew that there were challenges in putting that production together and putting that play on, but it was a conversation that we desperately wanted to have with our audiences, uh, the story that that play was representing. And then Swimmers was an epic play written in miniature. And, you know, it was an 11-actor world premiere, which is a very rare thing. It was a very quiet play that looked at the way we live and the way we interact with the people that we're with most of the day, which are our co-workers. Both of these writers, Elizabeth Irwin for My Manana Comes and Rachel Bonds for Swimmers, they are two playwrights who will be the future of the American theater. And it's important for theaters to get behind artists that are going to be redefining how we think about theater in the future. And these two artists were incredibly important as part of our family and, and as part of the conversation and dialogue that we're having with our community. Well, you also seem to know with swimmers that it would not attract the larger audience because it had a shorter run. The reason it had a shorter run was because it had a two-week preview process. Wow. Um, so we actually did the same number of performances, but the play didn't open to the critical reviews for an extra week. We gave the play more time to to work in front of the preview audiences so that the playwright and the director and the actors and designers 
just for that fact, could really reshape the play if need be. Um, and our board, I have to give them amazing credit because they allowed us to literally push back the opening for a week. That's a tricky thing because especially in the Bay Area, the reviews, once they start coming out, really propel your ticket sales. Mm -hmm. And the reviews for swimmers were fantastic. So in a lot of ways, we wish we had more room to have extended the play because the audience was really building for the play as we had to close it. But I wouldn't have taken away that two-week preview period that we had because there was a two-day span where there were new performances where we were able to really get in and re tinker with the script a little bit and let the playwright really make the changes that normally she wouldn't have seen put on stage for an entire second production. She was able to make changes and the actors were able to do some new things for the second week of previews that led to a much stronger opening than the play would have otherwise had. The Invisible Hand, when mm -hmm. I interviewed Ayad Akhtar, he had said something about doing a rewrite. You guys didn't know it until you were in production that there was a newer version. Actually, we started rehearsals and nine days later, he emailed us a brand new script that had just opened the night before in London. Literally, we got the play on May 19th and the draft was dated May 16th. So he locked the script on May 16th. He opened the play on May 17th. He sent the play to his agent on May 18th, and they sent it to us on the morning of the 19th. So we were nine days into rehearsal when we got this new draft, and it was 40% new material. And when I say that, it, the second act was entirely different. There were three new scenes. We actually had a whole second set that the audience never saw. The play takes place now in one room. In the original version that we started rehearsing with, there was a room for act one and a room for act two. So the act two room is was sitting behind the act one room and ready to be shown, but we never showed anybody because the new draft didn't call for it. Two of the character arcs shifted and the characters sort of changed their arc. It, it was really significant. I mean, I've never, and nobody involved with the production had ever had anything like that happen before. It was a greatly superior play and it was a very good play to begin with. But the changes were pretty amazing. Most of the questions that we'd come up with in our first nine days of rehearsal, the playwright answered himself in the rewrites. And I think a big strength of that production was that we decided to take the rewrites. I actually called the agent, Iad's agent, and after we read through the play, I said, you know, do we have to, to make these changes? And he said, well, you guys, where are you in? Have you started rehearsals yet? And I said, well, actually, it's we're now nine days in. And he said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I would have never sent it. I thought you hadn't started rehearsals yet. So it was only an accident that we even got those changes. And then we had a big conversation with the actors and the designers, and we decided to do the new version. And I think the production was much stronger for the changes. So we're all glad we did it. Uh, was one of the changes that the guy at the end who absconds with money is different or anything? The arc between the imam and Bashir changed. And so in the original version of the play, it was sort of unclear whether the imam had in fact stolen money to buy a house. It wasn't fully clear. And then Bashir went from, in the first act, sort of being a young man from the West who was sort of wearing the t-shirt of Islam to, by the end of the play, being an uber capitalist. I mean, someone who was really playing the market and was out for his personal gain. And those two things shifted so that in the production that we ended up doing, Bashir becomes 
more of a true revolutionary by the end of the play where he's actually pulling down the government, that he's using this money to really bring revolutionary change to the country as opposed to making money for the sake of making money. And uh, the costuming was radically different because of that from what it was uh, in the previous version. In the original version, Bashir is supposed to come in in really resplendent robes at the end. And that's not where he ends up in this new version. It was interesting to watch that because it also changed the, the arc of Nick Bright, the American investment banker. He went from being a sort of caught in the whirlwind between these two men to in the play that we did, sort of being someone who was manipulating both of them and working them and really playing them off of each other. And he became a much more active part of his own downfall over the course of the play. Getting back to the upcoming season, August Osage, there was a film that did not work. I actually haven't seen the movie. I heard so many bad things about it that I I actually haven't watched it yet. I know it was filled with amazing actors. I don't know that, you know, if I was directing the play, I don't know that all those actors were necessarily in the roles that I would cast them in. I know that we're approaching the play, we're bringing a bit of opera to it. We're really trying to focus in on the relationships between the characters. So we have a three-story house. It's going to be an imposing place that these folks are going to come to, but it's been stripped away a little bit. It's going to be a very different sort of approach to the play in the sense that the characters are front and center and the house itself is a little less naturalistic and a bit more imposing, I think. And the metaphor of the house, I think, through the set design is going to be a little bit more in the audience's perception, but we're really trying to peel back sort of the naturalism of the play and really get to the relationships between the characters. Because for me, that's the real heart of the play is the amazing comedy and tragedy that happens between these 13 family members. Jason Minadakis, you mentioned the metaphor of the set. Are you always looking at sets as metaphors? Not always. This happens to be a play that I've always had a sort of particular interest in how I wanted to tackle this play. I like family plays that really put the family front and center. And that's what we've tried to do with the way we've cast this play. We cast actors who've worked together a lot. We worked really hard to try to make the family a very tight-knit group of actors, much as what they did with the original Steppenwolf production, that it was, you know, the play was written for the Steppenwolf ensemble, and we've tried to do the same sort of thing. And the way those actors work together and the trust that they have with each other was really important to me in the casting process. That was something that we really put front and center in terms of the way we put the play together. Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley. Now, Lauren Gunderson is coming here, and she will be working on the play? Oh, yes. Uh, we're actually doing a workshop in September. The two playwrights, Margot Melcon and Lauren Gunderson, both have long histories with the organization. Lauren is actually going to be our playwright in residence for the next three years. So not only will she be coming here, but she'll be coming here every week. And the play is actually having three simultaneous stagings, one in Chicago at North Light Theater, one in Bethesda uh, at Roundhouse Theater, and here. And all three productions are opening within seven days of each other, I think. And they're three distinct productions. If she's working on the script and there are three, is it just one director? For three different directors, three different companies, three different productions. So they're going to be traveling around the country, working with the different artistic teams. You know, both Lauren and Margot are moms. I think 
a lot of the development work on the play is going to happen here in Marin, just because both of the writers are San Francisco based and both of them sort of call MTC their artistic home. And so they'll be working here on developing the play. We're bringing in our director. Another one of the directors from one of the productions is coming in to observe the workshop process. And we'll be sharing the development work with the other theaters as we move into the into the rehearsal process. You know, there's an article about something that happened in New York where a production of Hamlet was suddenly canceled because the director didn't get along with the artistic director. It's moving over to the public. Isn't there a fear when you're doing this kind of thing that there could be out of the blue a clash which sends the whole thing reeling? You've got theaters, you've got playwrights, and you've got directors. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people to try to juggle at the same time, and we see what happens if there's any kind of artistic conflict. Yeah, that's true. It all depends on the relationship that that the individual artists have to the organizations. And I can't speak for what's happening in New York at Theater for a New Audience and, and the public with the with the Hamlet production, but we have a very longstanding relationship with both of these playwrights. I've known Lauren for 12 years. Margot has been on staff with us for seven. So we have a very deep understanding, I think, of, of our processes. The artistic director at Roundhouse is Ryan Roulette, who used to be the producing director oh. here, and he's got a very long relationship with both of those artists as well. Northlight, I don't know the relationship there, but I know you know their artistic director there very well, and, and he's an incredibly kind and giving artistic director, and they've got a great director, Jessica Thebus, who actually directed our production of The Oldest Boy here at Marin, so I trust her implicitly with the work that she's doing on the play as well. So, you know, in this instance, I think the the three companies, the three directors, the three different directors that are working on the play all share a bit of history, but also the artists that are at the center of this process are artists that I certainly trust. And I trust the work that they would do with other artists. I don't feel like, you know, I worry about them being steered in the, in the wrong direction. I have a very very solid understanding of their artistic aesthetic, I think. And I, I think I understand why they would be making decisions and trust them implicitly. Native Son, what brought you to look at that adaptation? And from what I can gather, it's a 90-minute look inside the mind of Bigger Thomas, which is kind of different from the actual book. Yeah, it's definitely a theatricalization of the novel. And Nambi Kelly, the playwright, is also an actor. Nambi originally started working on the adaptation after the Trayvon Martin ruling. For her, that moment of misunderstanding that happened in our country was one that she felt was tied to her understanding of Native Son. And so she went back and started to, in some ways, deconstruct the book and started to create a theatrical experience that was really inspired by that novel. She found a way to take a very internalized novel and to externalize it because, you know, many of the adaptations of that novel that have taken different forms, stage form, film form have sort of gotten bogged down in trying to get that internal struggle that happens within the novel externalized. So you get a lot of monologues, you get a lot of voiceovers, you get a lot of things that really slow down the theatricality. Nambi did something to theatricalize the book that I can only say is an artistic stroke of genius. 
she has done something that has gotten closer to the heart of the book than any other medium conversion of that piece has done. It is so unbelievably successful that the Richard Wright estate has raved about what this this adaptation has been able to achieve. She used W.E. Du Bois' theory of double consciousness as sort of the starting place to create this theatrical adaptation of the novel. And I don't want to give away how she does it, but it is shocking and it brings an urgency to the conversation that's going to happen around the play and to the observing of the story um, that's going to happen between performer and audience that I think is going to really spur dialogue about the piece as Richard Wright envisioned it. Peerless, it's kind of this takeoff on Macbeth from Yale Rep. Jihei Park is a very exciting young writer. We actually have something really unique happening when we are doing her production of Peerless. She's going to be in residence with us working on the play, and simultaneously, we're going to be shuttling her up and down the the West Coast because she also has a new play that's getting its world premiere at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival that's opening two weeks after we open Peerless here. So Jihei's really having a big West Coast moment. The play that's happening up at OSF is called Hannah and the Dread Gazebo. But Peerless, we're doing the West Coast premiere of the play, and Jihei and her original director, Margot Bordelone, are going going to be here working on the script, continuing to develop the play. It is a riff on Macbeth, but it takes place in a Midwestern high school. The play is about two twin teenage Asian girls, sisters, who are applying for uh, admission into the university, the college that everybody wants to get into. And the two things that these two girls care about in the world are their academic ambitions and each other. They've even staggered how they're going to come out of high school so that they have the best opportunity to both get spots at this college. It follows the track of Macbeth in that these two girls are Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. If you were to compare it directly to the play, as they pursue their ambition, things turn a little bit bloody when things aren't going exactly as they expect. And it is a brilliant comedy, a really brilliant satirical comedy, right up until it turns to a different sort of thing. It's a five-character play, five-actor play. We've got a great cast for it. We've actually got the two original actors who originated the roles, both at the Cherry Lane Theater in New York and at Yale Rep. So we're excited to be bringing them out to be part of the process. How did you find it? Peerless was actually, I believe, the very first time I heard about it, Terry McMahon, who's an acting company member up at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, I believe she told me about it and told me that it was a play that I really needed to read. And an intern last year, Regina Fields, who's uh, currently working over at Cal Shakes, she also brought me another play of G. Hayes called Hannah and the Dread Gazebo. So I sort of simultaneously found two plays by this one playwright that are very, very different. But I was immediately really saw that this was a really exciting theatrical voice that we wanted to make a part of our family. I just had to figure out which play worked with us. And luckily, uh, you know, OSF was already moving on Hannah and the Dread Gazebo and, and Peerless was a really great fit for us. Next play there is Guards at the Taj by Rajai Joseph, who did Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. It's his historical play takes place when the Taj Mahal was created. Is that right? 
It begins the day the Taj Mahal was unveiled for the first time to the public. The Taj Mahal took 16 years to build. And while it was being built, there were temporary walls that were created around it so that nobody could see what it was. So the only people who knew what the structure looked like were actually the people who were working on it, the 20,000 artisans who were, who were actually creating it. It was hidden from the public. The walls were literally removed between sunset and sunrise. It's sort of a a memorial to the late wife of the Maharaja. We get to to witness that unveiling of the Taj Mahal through the experience of two of the most hapless guards you will ever meet. They're guarding one of the entrances to the Taj Mahal, and their only instructions are that they must face forward, be silent, and not turn around. And of course, they can't help themselves and, and things go very bad, but very funny from there. Um, it's a two-hander. Two of our actors from The Invisible Hand, the production that we did this oh, year, wow. are coming back oh. to be with us. Um, Barzan Akhavan, who has been uh, up at Oregon Shakespeare Festival for the past four years, is coming back. And also Jason Kapoor, who was also in The Invisible Hand with us and is a, is a Bay Area born and raised uh, actor. So we're, we're really excited about that production. It almost feels waiting for Godot-ish. You know, I think there is a bit of that. There's a bit of that existential sort of waiting around that happens, but I don't think it actually plays. In, in theory, it sounds like there is more than in the actual playing of it, I think. Well, I know that uh, Rajiv Joseph also has a very political tilt to it, so there's got to be something political there, too. There is. He's very interested in exploring the powerless, the the lowest strata of society and, and how the powerless react to the all powerful because, you know, some of the major players that you don't meet in this are the Maharaja, who at this time was sort of the deity on earth. He was the physicalization of the will of God and his rule was absolute and complete. And, you know, we see his dictates and his mandates and the way he views the world coming into conflict with these two men who are at the lower end of society. I think it's a really interesting statement about the conflict between those who are without question the 1% and those who are the people who make the everyday work happen. Jason Minadakis, the last play of this coming season is The Legend of Georgia McBride by Matthew Lopez. That was off-Broadway, and the best I could do is Drag Queens in Panama City, Florida? <laughs> yeah, it's a play that takes place in Panama City, and it takes place in a dive bar. The main entertainment in this bar is a young man named Casey, whose specialty is Elvis impersonations. And the bar's not doing very well, and Casey gets moved from being the main performer to being the bartender when the owner of the bar brings in his drag queen cousin to turn the bar into a drag show. The bar begins to turn around, and uh, one night one of the performers can't go on, and Casey's drafted into service. A drag queen named Tracy Mills teaches young Casey the ins and outs of performance of drag, of finding his own sort of artistic voice that perhaps has been buried pretty deep. It is a great play. Of course, Matthew Lopez, the playwright, is the playwright of The Whipping Man, which you know we did a few years ago here. And it's a great chance for us to show off the amazing range of this amazing American playwright who's written two plays that are, are really about the 
joyousness of the American spirit and in two very, very different ways. I'm very excited to have a conversation with our audience, both about his two plays, but also about the sense of personal freedom and personal identity that the play explores. We're particularly excited to be doing the play in June during Pride Month, which I think is going to be a really special time here at the theater. In looking at this, what I'm seeing is the first two plays are white people in the Midwest, then we've got white people over in England. But then we have African Americans, Asian Americans, Middle Easterners, and then drag. (laughs) It's pretty eclectic. I think so. And, you know, the interesting thing about it was it wasn't put together that way. We were looking for the six best American plays we could do. And we did know that for our 50th anniversary season, it was important for us to be doing as many new American plays as we could. And then, of course, it was incredibly important for us to find a way to start off the 50th anniversary season in a real sort of celebration. And we thought putting 13 of the actors that our audiences have come to really love on stage together in the great American family drama of the 21st century was a really great way to start. You know, from there, doing a play that's subtitled Christmas at Pemberley, it was it kind of had to happen between the holidays. And then the next four plays, you know, they're really new American writers that this company is just very excited to support. We have a, you know, a long history with Matthew Lopez and um, the other three writers, Rajiv Joseph. It's the first time we've done one of his plays, but he's got a long history here in the Bay Area. We're thrilled that we're able to bring two of our favorite actors back to be able to do that play. The other two plays, Peerless and, and Native Son, they absolutely explore a very specific experience in in the United States. And I think that's something that our company is has become recognized for and something that, that our audiences expect us to take them outside of their everyday experience and to give them a chance to experience the world through other people's stories. It's going to be a really exciting year. There's seven amazing playwrights. Jason Minadakis, is this true for every production that there's a library lecture, window on the works, a Q&A afterward, something called Sitter Saturday, a Perspectives matinee, and an after hours performance, an open captioning show too? Yes, that happens for everything. So for every production prior to the play opening, we do anywhere from one to three lectures in local libraries in Marin County. We always do windows on the work at the Mill Valley Public Library because it's right down the street here. And then we go to another library in Marin, another library or two for different types of pre-opening sort of discussions about the play and the playwright and the body of work. Every Wednesday at 7.10 before our 7.30 curtains, we have a pre-show lecture that happens Wednesday in the main theater for August Osage County because we're starting at 7 o'clock because of the length of the play. It'll actually start at 6.40. And then we do Q&As after every performance every day of the week except Saturdays for the entire run, except for opening and closing nights. So pretty much every performance people come to, if it's not on a Saturday night, they can stay for a Q&A. Uh, we do Sitter Saturdays for every production. It's one Saturday where we offer free childcare. Any parents are allowed to come. We, we do ask that if you know you're coming to Sitter Saturdays, give us a heads up just so that we have the right number of, of urban sitter babysitters there. Uh, we work with urban sitter on that. It's really awesome. And parents are really enjoying it. And then we do have an after hours 
dance party that sort of happens once per production. We do closed caption for one performance for every production. And, and if closed captioning is something that would be helpful to you, uh, you should absolutely call the box office and get the dates because there is one closed caption performance offered for every production. And it tends to be a matinee. And then we do have a perspectives lecture before uh, our Thursday matinees. So, yeah. Jason Minadakis, you're directing August Osage and guards at the Taj doing any direction outside of the theater this year? I'm not because it's our 50th anniversary season and I'm the father of two small children. So I've got the company to run, the 50th anniversary to celebrate, and uh, a family to look after. So I'm not actually going anywhere this year. I'll be around. You've been listening to an interview with Jason Minadakis, who is the artistic director of Marin Theater Company. The new season begins with August Osage County on September 8th. And the official opening is a week later. And for more information, you can go to marintheater.org. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.